welcome to the How Not to Screw Up Your Kids podcast. So, pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat and enjoy the conversation. This is episode 121 and today's episode, Raising Confident Girls, I want to talk about the very real and the very important factors we need to be aware of which impact our daughters quite crucially as they grow up. So this is a very specific around girls because I do think that there are some really sort of crucial aspects that makes the development process for a girl different and warranting an episode on its own. In lots of ways, raising boys is is a whole different one as well. But this episode is about raising girls. Now, remember, when I talk a lot about how not to screw up our kids, it's very much from that perspective of working with the end in mind. And the end is raising a resilient adult, one that is inhabits the adult world, is able to form relationships, is able to find some form of occupation, whatever that might be, something that they feel, they don't even have to necessarily feel passionate about the career that they take on, but it's that that sort of self-sufficiency and that resilient adult to be able to deal with life's inevitables up inevitable ups and downs. In this episode, I'm thinking about the crucial elements, the crucial factors that we need to consider to make sure that they're in place as part of the foundations. Remember, we talk about our children being a building um, is under construction. The factors that I'm going to talk you through are around understanding some of the things that are really important in those foundations. And then when we shift our focus away from the foundations of their building to then becoming the scaffolding, what we need to do so that we can help our daughter's buildings rise strong. So I want to just start with, I don't want to try and blow your mind too much here, but I do think that it's helpful to talk through some brain facts for a little bit of context before I give you my usual five kind of key things that I want you to consider. So let's just talk about some brain facts. I'm no neuroscientist, I'm no expert here, but I do think these are some easy to understand areas that we need to understand around around the brain. So the first one to remember is that between the ages of, a, of between six and eight years, our children will lose grey matter. So this is part of all children, whether they're girls or boys. And the grey matter is to do with the process. These are to do with systems. And it's this notion of you use it or you lose it. So the essence of this is that our children's brain development goes through the biggest, biggest sort of surge in those early years. We've talked about this before on previous podcast episodes, why those early years are particularly crucial. After that point, between the ages of six to 18, as they're making new connections because they're learning new things and then they're hardwiring those aspects of the brain, what then happens is things that were wired in those early years that are then not used then get pruned away. And that's in essence what this whole idea about use it or lose it. Remember that the brain remains plastic. So connections can be made at a later stage, you know, even in our 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, we can still learn new things, we can make new connections, they just take more time. You know, in those early years, that's when they're most, most primed. So they begin to lose some of those between six and 18, and that's all children. And what then also happens is they gain white matter. Now, white matter are all to do with the channels of communication. And this is all to do with how information goes from one to another. And that happens throughout their teen years into their 20s, because that's where the the brain doesn't really fully mature 
we used to think it was much younger, but now we know the brain doesn't really fully mature until around 23, 24. Those channels of communication or myelination, just think old style, very clunky internet access to super fast broadband. That's really what we're talking about with these, with myelination and channels of communication. So the speed at which things happen, then that white matter just amasses throughout those teen years into the 20s. So these are pretty standard boys and girls. Now we have some of the differentiators. The amygdala, don't worry, you don't need to know anything other than that's the part of the brain where emotions typically will arise. That's where that's kind of a a processing unit. Now the amygdala develops 18 months earlier in girls. So when we when we typically see some of these differences, this is where some of it is coming from. So that's that's the first one. As does the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is another part. We'll talk about the different functions in a minute. But it develops earlier with girls. And and what's different between girls and boys is that the hippocampi, just bear with me with these (laughs) technical terms. But in essence, if you think of your brain, it's got two bits and you've you've got one on each side, left and right. With girls, their hippocampi are symmetrical. With boys, they are what we call asymmetric. So one will be larger than the other. All right. But what that means is that there's more what we call left to right connectivity. So in essence, the left brain and the right brain talk to each other much more with girls than they do with boys. All right. So it will all make sense. Just bear with me. Okay. The amygdala and the hippocampus are these things that develop 18 months earlier in girls than they do with boys are part of the limbic system. And the reason why I want you to be aware of the limbic system is that system is affected by hormones and that system is also the system that is activated in our fight or flight all right so there's a bit of context here so let me tell you a little bit about the amygdala and the hippocampus before i move swiftly away from the brain the amygdala is the major processing center for emotions and it links the feelings the emotions to memory learning and senses all right so that's what the amygdala does the hippocampus plays a major role in learning and memory what we know is that the memory that we have of something if there's a really strong emotion connected to it we're much more likely to remember it and access it and the hippocampus is also involved in taking information that comes in in our short-term memory and putting it into our long-term memory where we can store it that's our kind of infinite storage capacity the hippocampus also has a big role in the emotion in emotional processing specifically including anxiety and avoidant behavior so that's the context that we've got we've got the gray matter and the white matter which is the same for boys and girls but we've now sort of seeing that girls their brain if we think about it as a you know computer and a software is already predisposed and pre-programmed around emotions and is developing much faster than it is for boys. And I want us to look at that in the context of some other major factors, because when we're thinking about raising girls, we need to take these factors into account when we're encouraging and supporting them, and particularly in the language that we use, but I shall come back to that. So we've got the brain context. Now I wanna give you some other context. Confidence levels between girls and boys are pretty evenly matched until around the age of 12 years. Girls' confidence is uh, starts higher um, than boys, and then girls' dips. Between the age of 8 to 14, girls' confidence plummets by 30%. That's quite a staggering amount, which is why 
this episode. Emotional intelligence, which is, I believe, the superpower of women, can also be their nemesis. And the reason why it can be their nemesis, emotional intelligence is about being able to understand your emotions, but also being able to understand the emotions of others, and then to adapt and modify your behavior in a given situation to accommodate the feelings of others. Now, you can see how that is a phenomenal superpower, but you can also see how that could be particularly damaging when girls can be overly empathetic, overly emotionally intelligent, can adapt and modify and sort of become this chameleon as to who they are because they are trying to fit in, they're trying to be accepted, they're trying to make sure that everyone else is happy. So you can see how that superpower can also become a nemesis. And what's crucial about this is also understanding this notion of emotional contagion or mirror neurons. And the idea behind this, I think, is in essence that what typically happens is that girls, because of this emotional intelligence superpower, is they're really quick to pick up and be able to read the emotions in a room, in an environment. They kind of, they become sponges to that emotional barometer. And so what can tend to happen is that if we've got particular challenges going through within a particular girl and her friendships, it then tends to permeate, it tends to ripple out. You know, these these are things that are just about being aware, you know, knowledge is power. Understanding this then helps us to understand where our girls can be phenomenal, but also where they have their vulnerability. And what is also happening, and it's happening with girls and boys, is this worry about judgment. Now, all children, all teens will go through this basis. They almost feel like everybody's watching them and everyone's having an internal commentary on them. But obviously, if we know that that's a big aspect to what's going on, when we then consider it within the context of all these other things that we know, that girls are developing this emotional intelligence, these connection with emotions 18 months earlier then that worry about judgment will just be more amplified for them. And then the other things that I just want to bear in mind is that their achievement expectations and being a good girl increase anxiety. 30% in girls, which is twice the level of boys. There's a lot around the way that we reward, the way that we praise girls that perpetuates this expectation that they need to behave in a particular way, this sort of good girl type dynamic which means that that has a big impact and so what happens is we unwittingly encourage their perfectionism people pleasing tendencies so this is the backdrop that I think is sort of really crucial that we understand you know when we're talking about raising confident girls we're raising these girls to become these resilient adults what are the five things that I think with given that knowledge given that understanding Given, you know, we know that there's now a call to action if we are raising girls. But I also think even if we don't have daughters, but we have sons, it's still crucial to remember these things. The crucial aspect of this is that it's certainly in terms of the context that I've given you around the brain structure is that that is the brain structure of a female brain. Some of those aspects of that female brain can be evident in highly empathetic boys, much in the same way as we often talk about neurodiversity being very much a male brain, which we can find obviously also in girls. If you've got daughters, clearly this is going to be a really important 
episode and some th- factors that you want to, that you're going to want to implement. But I also think it's an crucial it's a crucial thing that we should need to be considering for boys as well and for us just generally because we impact girls even if we don't have them as our daughters. So let me talk you through the five things that we need to be aware of. The first one is that language matters and language matters so much more so with girls because of their emotional intelligence because of this eagerness to please because of their sort of people pleasing tendencies is that we just need to be mindful of the language that we use because we could be inadvertently and I'm going to talk about praise that's a very different different aspect as well but we could be inadvertently perpetuating a lot of these gender stereotypical perfectionism good girl things just simply by some of the language that we use and I don't want you to get to become paranoid but this is why I think it's such an important part and I bang on and on and on and on about it and I'm going to keep banging on and on and on about it is that that we have some form of reflective practice as parents this is not a reflective practice so we beat ourselves up and say oh my goodness me I'm so rubbish at parenting I did such an awful job yesterday or whatever that might be but it's simply that we can keep ourselves in check around noticing what is it that I'm saying that might be perpetuating some of these gender stereotypes and the the language is very much from when our girls are really really young I've read something very recently talking about sexualization of girls and that'll be a whole separate podcast episode and a lot of talking about you know social media and talking about the imagery that's there and how that's perpetuated and absolutely that is a huge part of it but so much of that happens at such a young age from a really you know innocuous comments that are made around the language that we use that perpetuates this good girl sitting quietly, colouring in, being mummy or daddy's little helper, those sorts of things. It's just being aware of the language that we use so that we can then encourage that ability to take a step back from always being the fixer, always being the people pleaser, to be able to check back in on ter- in terms of bolstering their confidence, understanding their own personal strengths, playing to those strengths, not being afraid to be who they are and not worrying that that might prejudice their ability to be liked and being this malleable, people-pleasing, friendly to everybody kind of aspects of it. So that's the first one. The second thing that we need to be aware of is when our daughter's confidence is low, we need to be aware that they are likely to follow certain patterns of behavior and those patterns are you know around this idea about confirmation bias and being hyper vigilant. So let me talk you through what that means. So if I'm a young girl and I am low in confidence, now I'm obviously super primed around emotions, I'm picking up what's happening in terms of what people are saying and I'm super kind of clued into that. Confirmation bias is simply that I don't believe that I'm that greater person. Uh, you know, I, my confidence is not great. I don't have a huge amount of self-belief. So my confirmation bias means that I filter the information in my environment in such a way that I that I absorb, I take in, I notice anything that confirms 
my theory. So I will notice, you know, not being included in a particular activity of play, not being invited to a party, maybe anything like that or language that other people use. The confirmation bias simply simply takes all of the environmental information and filters out anything other than the stuff that confirms my belief system. What then happens is they are completely blinkered and blind to those moments where that one person came up to try and speak to them or paid them a compliment or tried to engage them in conversation. They completely ignore those. So it's being aware when their confidence is low, what we really want to try to be doing is helping them broaden and widen that lens and to consider what other things might be happening. And this typically comes out around friendships where you'll get someone who's feeling you know, a daughter who might be feeling particularly low in confidence and feeling that nobody wanted to play with them or they're not part of the popular group or they're not being engaged in those sort of uh, bigger group situations. And what happens is they tend to focus their energy on seeing the big, laughing, chattering, happy group and that they're excluded from that. And what happens is they then don't see the other girls or boys in their year who are also sat on the periphery who are not part of that group and they they blinkered to that and all that they see is their isolation and this big group that they're not part of the other aspect of it this notion of hypervigilance or I quite often say is this you know they're in their meerkat is that they then become highly tuned into anything in their environment that might also that they should be afraid of that should that they should be kind of looking out for and so that is also a really big factor so what will happen is that they will be able to play back to you anything and everything that they thought was a threat in the environment but they forget they they're blinkered they they don't see anything else that wasn't so it's just being aware of that if we if you're listening to this episode and you're thinking oh my goodness me you know those factors that you've talked about really ring true and I've got a daughter who's really struggling with her confidence it's that's the kind of context that they're that's the lens through which that they're seeing the world and our role where we can help them is by sort of just encouraging them to maybe widen that lens a bit not we don't want to do it in a way that we that we're sort of saying well I don't think that you're really looking at the situation really um, in the right way and I've heard from your teacher that this person really likes you and why why don't you go and play with them it's much more that sort of acknowledgement of how it might feel to them in those moments and you know have they considered that maybe because they're feeling the way that they're feeling that they might be missing out missing seeing you know, missing those moments where other people might be engaged or trying to engage in them so we're really encouraging them to maybe just experiment to play around to be curious to see what might happen that's the kind of way that we want to approach it because you know that way we're really you know it's about stepping into how they're experiencing the world and then just encouraging them maybe to broaden that lens so language matters being aware that when confidence is low that there may be these confirmation biases playing in and this hypervigilance the third one that I think is a sort of sort of important to consider is that when the sort of the typical process that psychologists will talk about is that thoughts and beliefs, you know, that's it starts with a thought, it starts with a belief, that then leads to a feeling, that feeling then leads to some form of action, 
And then that action, there's a bit of a review of the results. And then that feeds back to the thoughts and the feelings. Now, I want to challenge that because that's the typical way that we that sort of psychologists will typically work is that they'll work. Okay, if, if, if someone's behaving in a particular way, it comes from these thoughts and these beliefs. So let's change, let's challenge those thoughts and the beliefs so that they can feel differently and then they can therefore act differently. Absolutely, there's merit in that, but I just want to challenge it because William James, the godfather of psychology, had this, and I it just sits with me so much, is I don't smile because I'm happy. I'm happy because I smile. So the idea is I don't smile because I feel happy. So I start with the feeling and therefore the feeling makes me act in a way. Therefore, I smile. The notion is I am happy. I have the feeling because I've acted. It's almost kind of this reversal. And please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this because I just want this whole, just just pretend that you're happy, just smile and everything was going to be okay. It isn't. But my view is that feelings are an energy of some description. Clearly, some feelings are an energy, you know, when we're anxious, when we're scared, when we're worried, when we're nervous, when we're overwhelmed. They're not an energy that we particularly want to sit with, but in essence, they are still an energy. And what better way to work with that energy than to act. So it's about helping our daughters see that in a moment where they have a feeling, they have the ability to act on that. So they can act on it by perpetuating that feeling, or they can act on it by moving and shifting so there's a lot of there's been a lot of work around the way that we hold ourselves posturally, the whole kind of fake it till you become it with the power pose. But it's simply having that conversation of how can we shift that energy by movement? And, and because what that does is it just disrupts that state and allows us to be able to then shift. So it's being able to recognize that in some of those moments, we can get caught in the confirmation bias, we can get caught in the hypervigilance, or we can choose to act, to move our body, because that then helps shift it. It's not about not acknowledging the emotion. It's not about not experiencing the emotion. It's about being aware that we're feeling a particular way, knowing that we don't want to kind of, we don't want to stay in that state. And what are the things that we can do? And rather than get caught too much in the thoughts, we can then sort of shift it through energy. So that's number three. Number four is playing tricks with the mind. So our brain doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's imagined. So if you think of that sort of scary film or that feel-good film that, that you watch, if you're watching a scary film, your heart begins to race because of the way that the production is created, the camera angles, this music, the lighting, the anticipation creates that almost sense of fear and anxiety and turmoil in our bodies. And so our brain really doesn't realize that we're experiencing it through watching something. And so it activates the limbic system. It activates that fight or flight. And we get the complete reversal when we watch those feel-good films that make they leave that kind of warm, glowy, fuzzy feeling in us. Those are my favorites. I don't like the horror films. Thank you very much. But the idea is if we understand 
that that's how our brain works, then we can then begin to play tricks. We can encourage our daughters to understand that that's what our brain does. And how can we, in those moments of overwhelm, play tricks with our mind by connecting imagery, whatever that imagery might be, with the emotion that we would rather be feeling. So whether that's our daughters take themselves to a happy place, whether they listen to specific music that that reconnects them to that imagery, you know, whether that's a piece of music that they connect to a particularly happy moment, a happy holiday, a happy place, whether they're, it's really, it's helping them make that connection and an understanding that they can work through a particular challenge. They can build that resilience. They can build that confidence by using that knowledge of the brain not always you know not knowing what's real and what's imagined and taking themselves which is why some bury themselves in books they love that because that grounds and that takes them visually to a different space because they're getting caught in that storyline or it may well be that it's that that there's something that they connect to musically but it's it's using that power in such a way that it helps take them to a feeling and into a visual space that kind of creates that that restoring, that confidence building. And then the fifth one is praising bravery. So I've talked right at the beginning about that language matters and the way, so obviously the language matters in terms of what we use, but also the way that we praise. So it's praising bravery in whatever form this looks like for your daughter. It's working outside the good girl mold. It's praising those risks, praising that, being brave to be who they are, being brave to step outside of their comfort zone, being brave to challenge some of those societal norms and how we might typically praise our girls. That's what we should be praising rather than that. Anything that reinforces this notion to people, please, this notion to prioritise other people, this notion to fit in, to blend, to not stand out, to not be different, to voice their opinions in a respectful way. But that's what we want to be really praising because those risks what tends to happen is when we talk about this you know confidence levels drop between girls and boys is what also happens is the is girls lose the desire to take risks they don't want to take risks because they want to make sure that they continue to get that praise that they continue to be to fit in that they don't stand out that they're accepted and and liked by others and we don't want that we want our girls to be taking risks We want them, obviously, calculated risks, but risks in a way are around stepping out of their comfort zone, doing something that isn't typical of them, you know, being brave enough to be who they are and being accepting that what that will mean is that may not necessarily be liked by everyone, but that's okay. They don't have to be liked by everybody. They just need to be liked by enough people who connect to who they are, who are similar in terms of those fundamental values and who like them. So I think that that's a really, I just think we need to be braver and we need to be modelling. I haven't put that as number six, but remembering how we, how are we modelling being brave? How are we modelling playing these mind tricks? How are we modelling shifting ourselves in terms of our energy when we're caught in that overwhelm? How are we modeling when our confidence is low not being susceptible to that confirmation bias how are we modeling the language that we use about ourselves in front of our daughters 
So those are kind of my five top tips. As you can tell, I'm incredibly passionate about this. And it's not because I think that girls are less capable than boys. I just believe that our biology and our brain predisposes us to have this phenomenal, I really genuinely think that, that you know, we have this phenomenal superpower at being able to bring people together and those social interactions and that ability to read a room and that ability to respond and be really intelligent around the language and, and the thought that we use with other people. And we should be focusing in on that, but not at the expense of being who we authentically are and being brave and worrying about that acceptance, which is fundamentally very different to the way that boys go about things. And they have that boys have their own vulnerabilities and we'll do a whole different episode for them. But I just felt really passionate about this, having read so much recently in the press about about girls um, and their vulnerability. So I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I hope that it gives you some lots of different nuggets of of kind of advice and things that you can go back to, listen to it again, re-listen to it, focus on one thing that you can do right now to help. And obviously do share the episode with friends who you know haven't yet dived into the how not to screw up your kids well where or where this particular episode will be helpful so my give this week is going to be the usual top five tips which you'll be able to download from drmaryhand.com forward slash library all you need to do is pop in your email address and you'll get instant access to this checklist but obviously all the other resources and all the other checklists across all the other podcast episodes As ever, if you have enjoyed this episode or other episodes, I would be eternally grateful if you could follow, rate and review this podcast so that others can find us and we can spread the love. So until next time. 